Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us for our event this evening. Uh, With me, I have Professor Abraham Newman, Professor Stephanie Rickert, Dr. Jamie Martin. Unpredictable dynamics of the global economy, such as the Russian invasion in Ukraine, foster insecurity. We have technological innovation, warming planet, pandemic. All of this have really altered the prevailing wisdom that international rules foster economic growth. We have a growing economic rivalry between the United States and China. It all exemplifies this race to lead in the semiconductor industry. And that has, in part, led the United States to view export controls as strategic tools to impose so-called, quote, costs on adversaries. And it can feel like the fabric of economic globalization is unraveling. So new approaches to trade, policies, to data, financing, it's all taken shape in response to these unpredictable dynamics. And many states have growing security risks with open, non-discriminatory trade, and economic interdependence. But if trade comes at the price of security, then some states see the answer as securing their borders, as saying, wait a minute, actually, no thanks. So considering these dynamics, what are the roles of international law and international economic institutions? Are the challenge you know, are the challenges of global governance that new, or are we seeing echoes of the same asymmetries of national powers that we saw 40 or even 80 years ago, such as concerns of inequality or the prerogative of empire? With states responding to shocks by building resilient supply chains, what will happen when economic activities are increasingly concentrated geographically? And how will states use their powers within this interconnected global economy to choke off economic or information flows or exploit other states' vulnerabilities? So even before the past few years' shocks, our experts today have published extensive research into how law functions in global politics and the other way around. So we're gonna begin with Dr. Jamie Martin. He's an international historian joining us from Harvard University, Harvard University's history department. And Dr. Martin will speak about global economic governance and the current moment of debt distress, rising interest rates and bailout loans from the perspective of history as detailed in his new book, The Meddler's Sovereignty, Empire and the Birth of Global Economic Governance which Harvard University Press published in 2022, so this year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, It's great to be here, and it's good to see everyone. Um, So the correlation of major crises in the world economy today is quite extraordinary. There's obviously a return of significant inflation around the world, and just last month in this country, uh, the inflation rate hit over 10%, right, which is a four-decade high Um, This has been followed by uh, major interest rate hikes by the U.S. Fed and now by most of the world's leading central banks, which has pushed the U.S. dollar to historic heights and encouraged um, a record uh, capital flows out of emerging markets. 
Um, this is also now threatening debt crises among many uh, low and middle income countries, uh, some of which like Sri Lanka and Zambia have already gone into default. Uh, cost of living crises are nearly universal while extreme climate related disasters are growing in number uh, and causing tens of billions of dollars this year alone. Now, the nature of this series of related dislocations in the world economy, it's obviously been devastating, but I think it's also been instructive in uh, uh, laying bare some of the plumbing of the global political economy in ways that often remain obscure or tend to be rendered in, in, in highly non-political terms. And one thing it's shown us, I think, is that we really lack effective infrastructures of global economic cooperation for dealing with some of these sources of serious instability. Now, that's not to say that we don't have some powerful international financial institutions. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund today, is actually making a record uh, a number of loans, at least $140 billion, um, bailing out Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, on poised to shell out even more money to countries like Ghana, Egypt, Tunisia, and others. Um, so today, the IMF is clearly the only international institution with the global reach and the resources and the mandate uh, to act as some kind of global lender of last resort, which means it's uniquely placed uh, to play some kind of role in dealing with the uh, potential of serious global debt crises today. At the same time, uh, the IMF today is not what it used to be. Uh, the institution's lost quite a bit of clout uh, since the last time it faced uh, crises of this magnitude. And it's rarely an institution that states turn to happily, let's say, um, until and unless they're in extreme distress. Um, or sometimes, as in the recent case of Sri Lanka, they've already faced uh, kind of total financial collapse and even regime change. In large part, this is because of the stigma and perceived political risks of agreeing to the terms of IMF assistance, which tend to involve demands for austerity um, and often unpopular reforms like cutting subsidies to food and fuel um, at times of economic turmoil um, and, and, and even uh, uh, during crises uh, of cost of living like we're seeing today. So I think this illustrates something of a paradox about the world economy today when it comes to international efforts to deal uh, with global, with truly global economic instability, the IMF is still really the only game in town. Um, but it's also an institution that few states, unless they're in extreme distress, really kind of willingly and happily turn to. And it's an institution that's also proven quite reluctant um, to change how it does business in a fundamental sense over time. So how did we get here? As the historian on the panel, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few words about some of the relevant history for this context. Um, now there's a common story about how the IMF developed these kinds of interventionist and controversial powers as it was harnessed for a US-led project of remaking the world after the Cold War, for a kind of neoliberal project of globalization, let's say. And this story tends to be told as one um, that really focuses on how the IMF kind of lost its way or how after the end of the Bretton Woods system, it was dramatically repurposed for quite a different project. So according to this story, when the IMF was founded at the end of the Second World War, it more or less reflected the kind of Keynesian and New Deal spirit of the times. It was supposed to encourage states to rejoin a reconstructed world economy um, while also freeing them from constant anxieties that global market forces would turn against them if they experimented with welfareism or Keynesian style domestic policies. But as I argue in my book that Mona kindly mentioned, the meddlers, um, this conception of the IMF as upholding a kind of mid-century social democratic or embedded liberal compromise 
relies on what I think is a misremembering of how the institution actually operated after it opened its doors um, at the end of the war. From the beginning, the IMF, despite the protestations of, of many of its members, began to tie its assistance to uh, demands for domestic fiscal and monetary restraint, particularly in the so-called third world. And this kind of unpopular and interventionist form of global governance actually predated the IMF by quite a bit. Um, it originally appeared at the end of the First World War when powerful empires and private actors forged new partnerships and new ways of doing business at a moment of enormous global upheaval. Uh, the first time that an international body ever made bailout loans conditional on austerity um, was not by the IMF in Latin America or Asia or elsewhere in the late 20th century. It was by the League of Nations, in fact, um, in former Habsburg and Ottoman lands in the 1920s. And uh, uh, this involved, uh, under the League, uh, adapting techniques that had been used earlier by semi-colonial debt commissions that had been created in the 19th century in many places in North Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, and elsewhere. And what I argue in the book is that there were deep continuities uh, between these 19th century tools of informal financial empire and the new institutions of international economic governance that were created in the interwar period and then also in the 1940s. So when people talk about the birth of the Washington consensus um, in this kind of you know, uh, 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 neoliberal IMF of the late 20th century, what I think we're seeing is actually the expansion of a set of powers that were always latent in the institution or that had already been more narrowly deployed um, uh, by an institution that was already itself carrying on a much older tradition of bankers diplomacy from the 19th century. Now, it's certainly true that the IMF by the end of the 20th century um, was a much more powerful institution. It was acting much more forcefully on the global stage than ever before. And of particular importance here uh, for where we are today, I think, is the response of the institution um, to the so-called Asian financial crisis of 1997-98. Um, what I think we've seen over the last two decades or so is a series of attempts by many states to avoid ever needing to call on the IMF again. Um, seeing full well the loss of autonomy and political risks um, that doing so can entail, kind of a lesson learned, let's say, from the late 90s. And two things have been key to this process of what we might go so far as to call a backlash um, to the IMF over the last 20 years. Um, uh, the first thing is uh, uh, that many states have pursued a policy of accumulating vast quantities of currency reserve assets to essentially ensure themselves against crisis without needing to call on an international bailout loan, again, with all the pain that this can involve. Um, and this policy of, of reserve asset accumulation is a, is a costly one and can be quite an inefficient one. It diverts resources that can be used in investment or uh, uh, consumption at home um, for the sake of essentially hoarding dollars, euros, and other currencies. But it's proven to be a popular and often successful method of uh, financial self-insurance. Um, and I think this policy has not only been about mitigating crisis, but also about guaranteeing states a kind of strategic wiggle room and leverage. And I think this is certainly true in the case of, of a state like Russia. Um, after a long and painful experience of engagement with the IMF in the 90s, Russia spent the, the uh, early years of the 2000s um, accumulating an enormous war chest um, of currency reserve assets, essentially, um, uh, at least in large part, I think, to guarantee a kind of strategic autonomy and ensure that it wouldn't need to turn again to a US-led institution if it got into trouble. Um, and I think we this year we saw this strategy um, uh, kind of countered head on or, or directly engaged by the United States and its G7 partners 
when they froze around $300 billion worth of Russian assets in a move that was designed, at least in part, um, to bring uh, uh, the war of aggression in Ukraine to a halt. Obviously, it didn't work. Um, but I think in the process, we, we learned something about how the strategy of dollar accumulation can be flipped on its head at a moment of conflict and how the question of who controls assets, not just uh, who owns them, um, is at the end of the day paramount. Uh, a second important context, I think, for explaining kind of where we are and how we've gotten to where we are over the last few decades, in particular, how states regard the prospect of IMF conditional loans with a new kind of hesitancy um, is the rise of China as the world's largest bilateral lender today. Um, what's key here, I think, is the fact that China doesn't make the same kind of demands um, for austerity, for example, or other kind of painful domestic reforms when it makes loans. And this can be a source of consternation um, you know, at the World Bank or in, 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 uh, among Western governments, um, as China is accused of essentially kind of providing loans that allow autocrats to spend on extravagant infrastructure or for corrupt patronage or, or whatever. Um, but I think we should also um, recognize why some countries would uh, 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 might choose loans with fewer policy conditions, particularly now that they face more choice really than ever um, uh, uh, about who they borrow from. China has also recently dipped its toes into emergency style short-term lending, not just the kind of long-term Belt and Road style infrastructure loans, but the kind of short-term loans um, uh, uh, for balance of payments problems and other um, issues that really recently was just the province of the IMF. Um, now at the IMF itself, there has been since at least the 2008 global financial crisis, a lot of talk about change and about dropping a, this kind of commitment to deep conditionality and austerity. Um, but as, as many studies have convincingly shown, I think the, these rhetorical moves haven't been matched by major changes in policy at the institution. And almost any time the IMF makes um, a bailout loan, um, it, it still insists that the recipient um, undergo fiscal consolidation. Another interesting thing though that, that uh, research has shown recently is that states that have prior loan arrangements with China actually tend to get much more lenient uh, treatment um, by both the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and I think you know we could debate whether or not this is a good thing, but I think it's clear that growing competition among creditors of the kind we're seeing today playing out quite dramatically um, does seem to be leading to some changes in how these institutions treat states that have more leverage um, simply by dint of having greater choice um, among uh, possible lenders. So, so I think that the institution of the IMF and perhaps by extension institutions of global economic governance in general are racked by kind of tension at this moment. I do think that there is a real audience for reform um, uh, and that powerful officials um, and certainly within the IMF's research department, um, there's a realization of a need for change. Uh, we even saw Larry Summers um, a few weeks ago in the Washington Post saying that these institutions needed to really dramatically reform how they did do business at this moment. So I think there's an audience and a willingness to consider um, reforms and new policies, such as an expanded issuance of special drawing rights. Um, but the IMF is, is proven very slow to change. There's a lot of institutional inertia um, uh, and there's been a real kind of um, a hesitancy, I think, to move past this kind of interventionist creditors diplomacy that has very deep roots really for over a century. And that continues to prove 
Um, one of the sticking points about global economic governance and one of the things that can make it so unpopular. Now, I think today the question um, or, or a question that I'm interested in is how these overlapping crises um, really that we haven't seen for decades, um, uh, uh, how, how these crises coinciding with this rise of new multipolarity, um, whether, these, uh, whether this does force some real changes in global economic governance. It's an open question. I'll leave it at that. So am I. Thanks. Um, really raised some interesting points that traverse over to trade as well. Mm. As you think about currency reserve hoardings, sort of, you know, think about all this increased stockpiling we're seeing with respect to the pandemic and, and now security. So next, speaking of trade, is to talk to Professor Stephanie Rickard, who is a political scientist, also joining us from the LSE Department of Government. Uh, Professor Rickard's expertise is in trade politics, and her recent book, Spending to Win, is a compelling narrative really on the making of economic policy. Um, Professor Rickard is going to address some of the critical issues that she sees with the power of the purse. Uh, and she'll speak about government spending power and the importance of geography. So thank you. Great, thank you very much. I wanna highlight two issues that I think are really a challenge for globalization going forward and particularly for trade. One of these issues is really a domestic issue and the other is an international issue. Both of these issues, I will argue, pose a challenge for globalization going forward, but they're also a result of the very successful two, three, four decades we've had of rapid globalization to date. So the first challenge is a domestic challenge. And this is a challenge that national governments have to face within their own territories, within their own populations. And that is geographic inequality. We know that trade generates inequalities within countries. Within countries, there are distributive consequences. Some people win and do better because of globalization and freer trade and freer capital flows, but some people lose. And typically we think we've thought about these distributive consequences as being aligned perhaps by skills. So high skilled workers in developed countries often do well by trade, lower skilled workers sometimes lose because of trade in developed countries. But what we've seen increasingly is that trade also creates winners and losers geographically. So there are some parts of a country that do well, that win from trade, that succeed when there's free flows of goods and capital and people across borders, but there are other parts of the country that lose. So in the United Kingdom, for example, think about London. London has a comparative advantage in services. They win, right? They're winning from trade and globalization, the openness that we see in trade of goods, trade of services, capital and people. But other parts of the UK aren't doing as well because of globalization. So think about maybe a more historical example, but think about Leicester. Leicester was part of the country that really had a comparative advantage in textiles. So they were producing textiles, exporting textiles. The, the, the local economy was rich and growing. But then we saw that they sort of lost that comparative advantage. As there was a change in uh, the cost of labor, they lost that comparative advantage. And so it's not just the industry, the textile industry that in Leicester that declined, which it did, but it's also the entire local economy. The entire local economy suffered. And so as a result, we have these states, these territories that are really pulling apart because of globalization, where you have some areas winning and some areas losing. And because politics is often territorial based, right? you have a representative that is elected from a district that's geographically defined, that goes to parliament and represents those interests. That creates really 
difficult conversations over trade. That's why we see so much conflict politically, so much political contestation over trade, because you have these representatives coming from parts of the country that win from trade, promoting trade, seeking out new trade agreements, working to, to open up capital uh, barriers to trade and barriers to capital. But you have others that saying, wait, this phenomenon is harming my constituents. It's harming my local economy. And so that's one of the reasons why trade has become such a polarized issue. It's become such a hot button issue. And that's really a challenge for globalization going forward is finding this political compromise on how, where do we land on, on this difficult issue. So that's the domestic issue. The international issue, simple, one word, China. Right? China is a huge challenge for globalization in part because we just, the rules, Many of the rules were designed without thinking about how this type of economy will fit in the global economy. So we think about subsidies. The WTO has clear rules about subsidies. They're very hard to apply to, the, to China. They're very hard to apply given the way the Chinese economy is set up. So I think that's the real international issue that international institutions, international law is gonna struggle with. Related to both of these challenges, is of course the power of the purse or government spending. Um, we've seen governments try to respond to both of these challenges with their financial power. So for example, in the UK, we've heard, uh, we've seen a little bit so far, the government saying, we're gonna use the power of the purse to try to level up regions. We're gonna try to help these disadvantaged regions that aren't doing very well to make sure that we're all winning from trade, to make sure that we're all winning from globalization. So we see governments trying to use their fiscal power to achieve some domestic policy goals. In the United States, we've seen the government say, we wanna subsidize uh, the purchase of electric vehicles. We wanna see a take up of this green technology. In China, we see huge amounts of money getting plowed into subsidies in order to grow their exports and grow their economy. So there's this close correspondence between globalization and what really is domestic policy. And this I think is the challenge that's really gonna underline all of the issues that we're talking about tonight. This challenge of how do you take a domestic policy, right? government spending, government subsidies that can really be used to obtain very reasonable goals, right? The adoption of green technology, leveling up of regions, growing your economy. These are all reasonable goals that governments can hope to achieve using their policy, but by doing so they're impacting on international trade and international relations. We see this very clearly in the case of Chinese subsidies. This is one of the biggest flashpoints in trading relations today is what do we do about Chinese subsidies? What do we do about this huge amount of money that's really reshaping trade in steel, semiconductors, aluminum? How do we, how do we grapple with this? And I think that's the big challenge for the World, or, or world Trade Organization, right? How do we reform the rules? How do we reform the institution to grapple with this. And I think if they can't, that's really damning for the institution. It's not, the end, it's not game over, right? We've seen the European Union adopt their own strategy, right? The European Union has said, okay, there's a problem. There's a problem with Chinese subsidies. We're, we scrutinize subsidies amongst our member states. Let's carefully scrutinize the subsidies of those foreign goods that are coming into the single market. So that's an alternative strategy but it's a strategy that sidesteps the global multilateral institution that had been set up, namely the World Trade Organization. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Um, so much to think about.
thinking about these institutions and how they one action in one place sets off multifaceted and spiraling effects to, to people around the world. So finally, we close with Professor Abraham Newman. Professor Newman is a political scientist appointed to the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And with his co-author, Henry Farrell, Professor Newman is the author of the award-winning of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security, uh, and also Weaponized Interdependence, which was published in International Security. Professor Newman is going to speak on the increasing merging of economic and security issues and the challenges that this presents for globalization. Great. Thanks, Mona. And thanks, everybody, uh, for coming. Um, so this really, what I'm going to talk about is this work that Mona mentioned um, with Henry Farrell on weaponized interdependence. And uh, in, in a brief 10 minutes, I want to convince you of four things, uh, which I hope will change the way you think about globalization. Um, you know, the, the question is, what is the relationship between globalization and global politics? And this is the first point, is that we were kind of sold a myth. There was kind of a bag of goods that globalization was going to promote peace, that the world was going to be flat. There was this kind of joy of commerce and law. You can tell there's a whole bunch of these myths that were thrown around. But whether you like it or not, that caricature is stuck in the back of your head somewhere. It's this idea, it's the Etsy revolution, firms are in control, governments are impotent, you know, like we're in this decentralized world, things, bits, money, whatever it is, parts, they're flying across the world. And if you look in your pocket right now, you have a phone that relies on one or two really essential operating systems. It's either the Android operating, Android operating system or the Mac operating system. And if you don't have access to one of those operating systems, how are you going to run a phone? And that's kind of the core kind of argument that Henry and I try to make is that the, the economic world of globalization is not that flat decentralized world. It's often highly concentrated and it's not just about your phone. So it's about how money flows across the world. We think of finance, footloose capital. We hear these stories, okay? Yeah, but there's about you know 15 banks in the world. If you wanna do a major transaction, they have to clear it if it's clearing two different types of currencies. And that's what people call the dollar clearing system. But those banks, if they do not allow you to use it, you're not a bank anymore. And I could just go on and on. Global supply chains. Oh, global supply chains are so complicated. They're so, no, but a lot of them rely on just a few firms that then if you take those firms out of that equation, they collapse. Okay, so what we are trying to argue is that that structure, this is my second point, is that structures have power. Okay, if you think about how traffic flows in this city, there are a few choke points. I, uh, with my daughter, who is uh, traversing them today, we ran into them several times where we got stuck in the mob of the underground. And we were like, oh my God, I don't know if we're ever going to get on this underground uh, train because there's so many people. Those choke points are not just in the economic sphere, but states have woken up and see them as their own strategy. If they can take you know, stop you from having access to that OS operating system, stop you from having access to that dollar clearing system, then they have an immense amount of power. And that power is really to deny you access to globalization. And so that structure that I started to talk about, that's an economic structure. The states didn't invent that. They didn't invent at the Mac operating system. But now that it's concentrated like that, they can use that to exert their power either by monitoring you, that's what we learned in Snowden, the Snowden Affairs, 
or by limiting your access to it by saying you're not going to be able to be part of this global system. Okay, so the, the first point is that globalization is really much more concentrated than we think. And the second point is that creates an immense amount of power for states that can use that power to limit your access to it. The third point is, is that this is very dangerous and risky and that we have to be very careful with this power, okay? Because if we start to tell people that they cannot have access to the, like the lifeblood of the global economy, you know, first of all, it can have unanticipated consequences. Uh, there was this case, it was in the first Russia sanction, so many years ago, uh, when uh, Russia invaded Crimea the first time, and then they meddled in the U.S. election, there were a whole bunch of things. But anyway, the U.S. passed a bunch of sanctions, which uh, attacked Rusal, which is a Russian aluminum company. And Rusal has an affiliate that's in Ireland that basically makes all of the key input steel for a lot of the European auto industry. And so we sanctioned Rusal, and then we get this, the U.S. government gets a call from the Irish ambassador and says, you know, we have a problem. This is going to lead to a whole ripple effect throughout the European you know, auto supply chain. And that was not what OFAC, the organization in the United States that targets sanctions, that's not what they intended, or at least I don't think that's what they intended. They intended to go after, you know, Dairy Pasca and Rusal and the kind of the, the, you know, the Russian guys. But instead, they all of a sudden, they, you know, they're getting calls from the you know, the auto uh, lobby from Germany saying this is going to have problems. Okay, but that's that's just because we don't know everything about these supply chains or where these choke points in the global economy are. But another problem is, is that you're going to start having other countries who are saying, well, how do we how do we get out from under this? How do we protect ourselves? And in some cases, it's very difficult for them to do that. I am not a believer there's going to be like a renminbi alternative to the US dollar in the, any mid or you know even long term. I think it's quite unlikely. But instead, what you're going to see, in my opinion, is you're going to see dark spaces, places in the global economy where countries that are worried about being the next target of this type of power are going to say, well, we're going to, we're going to create kind of dark money areas where they can conduct their business without the US government, for example, being able to know. And we saw that with Iran. Iran basically now, according to what I understand, is exporting at about a level uh, of their pre-sanction level. And that's because they've created kind of dark money financial exchange procedures to sell their goods. Now, it's not as efficient, and all the economists would say, why, yeah, that's crazy, but they don't want to be part of the U.S. sanctions regime. And so they have to find these other spaces. So think about not Iran, but think about China doing that. And you have like a really big uh, area of money or power or whatever it is that could be, um, I would say, used in ways that, that just people wouldn't be able to assess risk. And so that's not necessarily where we want to go. Okay, so that was my third point, is that this could be bad if we let this get out of control. So four, what do we do about it? You know, I'm always a positive person. I brought my daughter to London, you know, I'm, ha I'm a happy guy. So, you know, we have to think about this seriously. And for me, you know, we don't have a language to talk about this, about what is the risks of a world where the global economy is being weaponized. And we need experts, both within the government and out of the government, to really be investing their resources in it. If you just think about how global supply chains work, very few, that's not a core competence of the State Department in the United States, 
okay? The Treasury Department in the United States. Supply chains are like that boring thing that somebody in a management school, sorry, LSE management school, you know, like, you know, that, that they're thinking about. And even them, they're only thinking about their company's supply chains and maybe their supply, the, the second or third tier suppliers, but they're not thinking about like the, what I talked about, the Irish example, you know, of how this could ripple down into the supply chain. And so you need a lot of people who understand this stuff in a very fine-grained detail in order to, to, to really use these weapons in a effective, but also to get your goal, which whatever it is. The second thing is, is that you need a set of institutions that can think about these problems. Like in the United States, we have a national security council, but it doesn't think about things as economic security. And so uh, there's this interesting new development in Japan where they created an economic security council. And I, I think like, you know, the European Union isn't even close to either of these things, National Security Council, let alone an economic security council. Um, the other point that I just wanna make is that it's really fun when you have this new hammer, you just like to hit things with it, right? You're like, yes, go after that one. Russian reserves, bam, you're evaporated. Okay, that's cool. I mean, it is like unbelievable that they were able to do that. But you also have to have carrots. There's has to be taking care of the people in the world, not just, you know, whacking them again and again. And I think Nick Mulder, he's a professor at Columbia. He has this great book, The Economic Weapon, where he traces the history of kind of sanctions. And one of the things that he points out is you have to have carrots as well as sticks. And like my personal thing right now is the food crisis. Yes, we're able to sanction Russia all we want. Well, the, the, the Russian war is creating a food crisis. I'm not saying we're responsible for that, the West. You know, Russia caused that. They're invading Ukraine. But we could do things not just to sanction Russia, but also to alleviate the global food crisis. And that's a place where we could invest and you know, we could not just be the hammer, but also um, part of the solution. The final thing I just wanna say is that we have to develop a set of rules of the road, kind of a strategic rule book of how do we use these weapons? You know, like uh, when, when nuclear weapons came on the scene, there wasn't a rule book. We didn't know what to do with them. Things like mutually assured destruction, you know, that, that, that had to be invented. And so we, as a community, we have to invent those things really before uh, it's too late. And I'll end there. Thanks so much. Um, I think Nick Mulder goes to Cornell, teaches at Cornell. Cornell, not Columbia. Cornell. Oh, Cornell, sorry. Watching. Sorry, Nick. We know. Sorry, sorry. Cornell. It's another C. Yeah, it's, it's very similar. They're, they're near each other. Um, so because, and I should have started with this, the law school here at the LSE is hosting this. I am thrilled that we have two political scientists and a historian that have all said we need rules and we need institutions, <laughs> right? Because they're important. So um, let, me, let me reflect on that a little bit because that's obviously my bread and butter is to think about how do we get these security issues and these, these issues to come out into the rules and how do we think about that? Because everyone really framed nicely the problems that are going on with these institutions, how they are being possibly phased out or replaced. How do we deal with challenging domestic rules and policies that don't seem to fit the existing architecture? So what do we do? Um, so we've seen a couple of things. One is, and this is highlighted by all of our speakers, we see governments coming up with ways to do it on their own, right? They build their own hammer. They build their own anti-coercion instruments. They come up with new subsidies. They come up with you know, new development banks, and they're thinking about this. And I, I want sort of everyone to think about, you know, what that means where we're seeing this pivot to this idea of, of resiliency and, and focusing inward and going it alone and these unilateral tools, 
because you know the long-term impacts i do agree very much with with what abe said is that we have to think about as these actions are being taken we don't know the the multifaceted or ripple effects we don't know how how private firms are going to respond and their involvement in the situation we don't know sort of three steps ahead of the game and so you know to to talk about some of these unilateral actions um and what you foresee and i'll, I'll start with with jamie and maybe we'll go back down yeah um well you know i think we see this language of resilience and and reshoring or friendshoring trade wars uh economic weapons you know a lot in the context of supply chains and trade but i think you know as i mentioned in my opening remarks there's been a process of uh, kind of uh, financial resiliency building, yeah. let's say, that I think has been underway for at least two decades. And in many ways, as I mentioned, you know, it was really a response to kind of perceived excesses, let's say, of financial globalization um, of the late 1990s. And, uh, you know, the memory of as well, I think, the kind of ultimate political stakes of being unprepared um, for a financial crisis or of needing to call um, on bailout loans. And I think, for example, um, the fall of Suharto in, in the spring of 1998, I think is kind of, you know, it's not particularly well-remembered political event in the West now, but I think is enormous, was enormously significant event at the time and kind of showed with clarity the kind of ultimate political stakes of regime change that could come from having an unmanaged financial crisis um, and a financial crisis in which you were kind of very heavily dependent on an institution like the IMF. Um, I think that one of the reasons that many emerging market economies actually escaped the global financial crisis that began in 2008, um, uh, at least escaped uh, experiencing the kind of, um, you know, worst effects of it, um, as they did in the 80s and 90s, was because they'd honed this strategy of kind of financial resilience and reserve asset um, accumulation. And I think it's interesting that you, you, the, you know, this, this, the states that had turned um, or that had become very deeply involved with the IMF in the in the 90s, Mexico, Indonesia, Russia, and others, you know, didn't turn to the IMF during the global financial crisis. I think that's very telling. Um, the historian Adam Tews, I think, is very aptly referred to this process of reserve asset accumulation as a strategy of self-strengthening. And I think it's a very um, uh, interesting use of the term. It's a term that originally is used to describe how states in the uh, uh, late 19th century, like Egypt and uh, the Ottoman Empire and China, attempted to undertake these ambitious domestic administrative reforms to essentially enable themselves to better resist the incursion of foreign empires. Um, and I think that um, it's, a, it's an interesting way of thinking as well about this strategy that many states have pursued over the last 20 years. Um, but I think it bumps up now, literally this year and last year, to this, this point that Abe made in this context of the way in which um, the US and, and European countries have now centrally targeted the reserve assets of countries uh, like Russia, but also Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban, right? One of the first things that the US does is freezes the dollar assets of the Afghan Central Bank, essentially as a you know directly political move, right? To kind of you know uh, hasten the fall of the Taliban regime, or at least to weaken it. So you know even this kind of strategy now is is um, I think you know um, it's being countered head on, or at least it's being demonstrated that I think you can't count on <laughs> having dollar reserve assets anymore as a guarantor of your strategic autonomy, or at least you need to go to great lengths to ensure that um, you know, these dollar assets aren't going to be taken out from under you um, when you run afoul of US strategic imperatives. Hi, 
I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I mean, unilateral action happens because there's frustration with the functioning of the multilateral institutions. And let there be no doubt, unilateral action can have negative consequences. We saw the US-China trade war erupt because of frustration with Chinese subsidies that couldn't be litigated within the WTO framework. And so the US responds unilaterally with tariffs. And we know there were negative economic consequences, both in the US and for other trading partners. So it's it's a telling indictment of these multilateral institutions. And what we've seen is not only this unilateral action, but sort of individual groups of countries or sort of sets of countries coming together and saying, let's try to sort this out. So the EU, Japan, and the US came together and said, let's try to set up an alternative way to deal with China. Let's see if we can find a way forward. It failed, but they tried. And even at the WTO now, what we see doing they can't get all 196 members to agree. So instead, what they're doing is signing these plurilateral agreements where some subset of the membership says, okay, we can agree on these rules. So you have a subset of the world nation saying, we can agree to rules on government procurement. We can agree on rules to fishing subsidies. That's great. That's forward progress. We see some you know, wins at the WTO. But if only some countries are agreeing to restrict their subsidies for fishing, but other countries are continuing to heavily subsidize their high seas fishers who are just scooping up fish out of the sea, is that really a win? Do we really need to sort of think about how to get these plurilateral agreements back to the multilateral table? Yeah, I mean, and I think this comes before I I go to Abe, some of the points of this idea that you raised about how the rules were created. And certainly, you know, especially now as I as I teach you, Abe, to come back to this, you know, whether there were mercantilist policies, trade policies before in the interwar period and, and even earlier, obviously, it's it's a different game now where we've seen the kind of networks that you describe that exist, right? That these kind of in you know complex supply chains didn't necessarily exist, which makes it, you know, those trade blocks that we're seeing coming back and these plurilateral agreement, a different, a different game, I think, but I want to turn to you now. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just want to maybe make two points. One is that um, there was a time where we thought geopolitics and economic governance were separate. And so we could play a game where we could think economic relations were about maximizing welfare and we would create a set of institutions that would maximize that welfare. And I think that we have to just accept that economic interactions are not an alternative to war. They're not like something that happens over in this space, but they can also be part of war. And that's what we're seeing in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict is that the West does not wanna get involved on the military battlefield. And so it is using these economic tools as part of its war strategy. Um, At the same time, I just want to caution that we don't have to throw out globalization after we recognize that. And so we can say there are certain areas of the global economy that are 
are worrisome and that they could become a vulnerability. And it depends on who you are, whether you're vulnerable or not. But the natural next step is not to decouple the global economy, from my mind. It's an easy political game. It's really, you know, it's like, ah, boom, China, or what, you know, whoever, whoever it is who you don't want to like. Okay. That's a political strategy that politicians use domestically because it gets them reelected. But for all of us, we want globalization to keep going because it gets us the things that we rely on, the wealth, the goodies, my daughter who's watching some crazy Netflix show right now, you know, that can only happen because of globalization. And so what we need to, the resilience question is to identify those vulnerabilities. And then instead of saying, well, we need to just nationalize, which I think is going to be a dead end. We need to think about like, in my mind, diversifying. That's the, that's the best strategy in those choke points is to say, well, then we need to develop an alternative to be less dependent on this thing. And I'm just, I'm living in Berlin this year and in Germany and like their persistent decision to become overly dependent on Russian gas. It was completely this BS myth. They just bought it hook, line and sinker. This is not strategic. This is just a commercial thing. Nord Stream 2, these pipelines, but they're not a weapon. Okay, of course they were. And they and everybody was telling them and they didn't want to believe that. And now they're you know, 40% dependent on Russian gas because of this version. And we can say in hindsight, like, ha, ha, ha. But everybody was playing that game. You know what I mean? Everybody was in this other game. So the key is to not just say we should end globalization and Germany should end globalization. They just, they need to think about diversifying in these places that could be on vulnerability. And often we don't want them to do it alone. You know, we want to help them do that to get to a place where they're not vulnerable so that everybody can keep playing. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's funny, this tees up really well to sort of my next question because one of the things I've, I've discovered in looking at particularly in the World Trade Organization, is that this idea that governments never bring up security in their talks is just wrong. They bring up security when they notify about policies all the time. Um, And it's about, for me, thinking about my work about the World Trade Organization is how to equip those members with better tools so that they can actually use the World Trade Organization in a better way, rather than trying to navigate that 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 pull, I think, against between economics and security. But I want to talk about this sort of recent rise that we've seen, particularly, obviously, from the the war in Ukraine, but also just generally, I think, with the United States planning its industrial policies through a security lens. And we see combinations where it is both for domestic job, job security, but also for you know, war, or it is for climate security. We're seeing a greater expanse of this idea about financing being a tool of warfare and this mix of economics. And, you know, I want to start with Stephanie, because, you know, what does it mean if states are orienting all of their purchasing around this idea of defense? But as we've seen this week, when they describe technological denomination as a part of their defense, right? So how do we know what is a military supply establishment and what isn't anymore? Mm So the government as a purchaser of goods and services has huge financial power. I mean, in developed countries, the government is account, government purchases of goods and services accounts for 25% of the economy. That's huge. That's the government's buying power. So they can use that buying power to accomplish a lot of things. And often they use it to accomplish very mundane things, right? We want to get value for our taxpayers. We want to, you know, buy food for our, for our prisoners. 
but often they can use this financial power, this purchasing power to privilege domestic producers, to change the structure of the economy. And so we've seen time and time again, governments, when they're going to say, we need to buy something, they're rewarding or they're favoring domestic producers. And in some sense, that makes sense. Their argument is we're using taxpayer dollars or taxpayer money. So of course we should be spending that money on a domestic firm. We should be giving them an advantage. But in doing that, it's akin to raising a trade barrier. It's the same thing as saying, we're not gonna buy foreign goods. They may be cheaper, they may be better, they may be higher quality, but we're not gonna do it. Now, in some types of goods, that, that's a bad argument, right? You can buy better cars, cheaper cars. Uh, there's a famous uh, Japanese example about skis, right? You know? And so in some sense, discriminating against foreign firms when the government is buying goods and services, it, it's not a good argument. But when it comes to the military, then it's much more difficult. And so when the government buys military goods and services, that form of government procurement is completely off the table. All, virtually all international agreements, right? Countries say, this is sensitive, this is secret. You know, we, we are gonna buy whatever we wanna buy from whoever we wanna buy, and we don't want you telling us what to do. So there's always this risk that there's overinflated prices, right? Wasting taxpayers' money, corruption, graft, all of this we know occurs in military procurement because it's just, there's, it's so opaque. There's no transparency at the national level, at the international level. And then you see the government using this buying power and using their financial power to change the structure of the domestic economy. You know, we need more semiconductor uh, chips. Let's just pile money into that. So rearranging the domestic structure of the economy. It, that doesn't have a great track record, right? Governments have tried to do this for a long time. There's been lots and lots of efforts to use financial power to shape the domestic economy via industrial policy. And it, it doesn't work very well. The government is not good at choosing you know, winners. It's not good at choosing industries or firms or sectors that are productive and that win. But again, when it comes to the military, it's so hard to make that argument because every country's instinct is to say, we need to produce military goods to protect ourselves. So yeah, absolutely. When it comes to the purchase of military goods and services, investing in critical technologies, there's huge amounts of government money going into it. And it's changing the structure of the economy. Um, and then I'm going to go to Jamie because the sort of tease up to your historical work, you know, in a lot of your book, you know, you talk about actually the institution using economic tools as part of, of, of warfare. And, and I wanted to sort of, you know, hear your perspective. What's the, the consequence of thinking about this economic planning in terms of war rather than in peace? Yeah, I mean, war and the kind of, you know, institutional innovations that come out of fighting a major war you know, can produce long lasting institutional transformations and political and legal transformations. I mean, one thing that I argue in my book is that really you see the rise of the first effective institutions of international economic governance in the 1920s directly out of these wartime institutions created by the major allied powers to wage war against Germany and, and Austria-Hungary and so on and so forth. Um, war also tends to generate exuberance for imagined futures you know, learning the lessons of what led to the war, doing things differently in the future. War tends to produce at least in uh, a belief of, you know, durable alliances. Sometimes alliances that aren't as durable as a war might make them seem, but nonetheless, um, you know, can have the effect of cementing alliances. 
uh, uh, war tends to give rise to ambitious ideas for what the post-war will look like, sometimes that are realized, sometimes that aren't as the kind of emergency conditions of war have gone away. I think what's interesting and, and unsettling to me right now is, um, and, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that while Europe is embroiled in the largest war it's seen in, in decades, while the, the threat of nuclear annihilation has reemerged, um, and while the global economy is being completely uh, distorted by this huge land war in Europe, that there seems to be correspondingly little energy actually right now to these questions of post-war planning in some fundamental sense. It seems much more that the discussion is about these questions of resiliency, of, you know, uh, kind of, um, you know, what do we do after the war to contain threats like this? It seems that among many policy makers, excuse me, that the end of the war in Ukraine isn't being imagined as a return to peace or really as a post-war, but perhaps um, more as the beginning of a new period of, of great power rivalry and, and strategic danger. And I think that's quite different than, than many major wars in the past when at the very least you had quite productive kind of um, thought and debate about how the world should be kind of redesigned after the war. I'm not sure we're seeing that right now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of one of my biggest concerns is that, you know, this is sort of what Abe was talking about, about the carrots and sticks, I think, that there's no kind of consideration about what to do to help people. And, you know, when I hear policies aimed at semiconductor, you know, domination in that sector, you know, impairing China and then what, right? And, and you know, commentators are repeatedly reflecting on the fact that the war in Ukraine is ongoing. And I think the strategies that we saw with freezing assets and freezing access to getting new assets with trade, those initial few months of planning were kind of a, an instant, let's go, let's put everything at it. And now we're trying to figure out what to do. And if this is endemic, how do we plan for that within these economic institutions? What do we do? If everyone's invoking security or military, then it seems to be in this I don't know if it's a dark space in the same thing of what you described, but it's certainly, if we're talking about stranger things, going back to Netflix, we're in the upside down and I don't know how we get out. So to close, before we go to questions from the audience, you know, I, I want to come back to Abe because obviously the language of weaponized interdependence is something that not only do we hear reporters talking about, we hear policymakers, government officials bringing it up. And, you know, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about what that means, you know, <laughs> Do you find they're using that idea of weaponized interdependence correctly? Are, are, is there a nuance to that that maybe we can clarify? You know, and what does it mean if everything about the global economy, though, is weaponized? Because you do seem to be hopeful about globalization, but is that is that a hope that then we won't be in the weaponized interdependence, or is it just going to be somehow governed a bit better? So I'll, I'll let you go there. Okay, um, I'll, I'll put my. Um my nerdy weaponized interdependence hat on <laughs> uh, for a second. So, I mean, I think that there's a, um, a tendency just to say like everything's being weaponized and, and, and that's not what we're talking about in our, um, in our work. You know, economic relations have been used in a coercive manner for, you know, centuries. This isn't like a new thing. States have used embargoes, sanctions, lots of different things in order to put pressure on their adversaries. And that is something that's just commonplace in, in global politics. It's something that we've kind of wanted to ignore in the last several decades, but it's, it's not something new. And really what we're talking about is when you have these global economic networks 
and that the structure of those networks are being used for coercion. So the traditional way is like I say, you know, the U.S. is going to not buy anything from Cuba. Okay, we're going to close our market. China did this to Australia. You know, we we you did something we didn't like. We're not going to buy your coal anymore. That's a traditional. It's called market access. It's like I stop you from having access to my market. I'm a really big market. You don't like that. But what we're talking about is that the networks that are part of globalization. Not just a single country's market, but those very networks are being used as the, the the channel of power, and that's so, you know, challenging because everybody lives on those networks. Everybody relies on the SWIFT system, which is what you know everybody uses to make global banking transactions. You know, those kinds of networks. If you cut China out from that, it's not just that you cut them off from the U.S. market. You cut them off from the global market, and often the people that are enforcing those rules are not even your co-nationals. It's not, you know, even U.S. banks that are making Iran suffer under the global sanctions regimes. It's usually Deutsche Bank. It's some other, you know, private actor. So it not only puts pressure on the target—China, Iran, Russia, whoever—but also the global economy because those private actors are all of a sudden their foot soldiers in this war that they didn't even know that they were a part of. Um, and so that's, I think, why this it, it creates a lot of tension in the system. Um, I just maybe if I can just for a second just come back to this place of industrial policy because I think it's maybe a bright light. You know, it's like a place where we can see efforts, and I think the place where it's going to be most important is in global climate mitigation, and it's it's really the only way we're going to get a solution to that problem. And I'm more. Uh, you know, I'm more optimistic about that governments can use it in a strategic way to solve problems because markets haven't. You know, markets aren't solving this problem. And like, if you go to Silicon Valley, they're spending billions of dollars on companies that make emojis that blink when you press a button and they steal your information. Do you know what I mean? That's that's how markets distribute money. That's not efficient. You know, it's efficient in somebody's mind, but it, they're making so many bets on unicorns and all this other money is just being flushed down the toilet and never and nobody ever says well those, those they're making bad decisions they're wasting the money you know it's like no they're like they're they're you know amazing they're the you know the governments yeah they make some bad bets but they're also trying to provide public goods they're not trying to make some emoji that makes some money for you stealing your information they're trying to solve a problem and so okay they make some bad bets but we have to solve these problems and the government has the resources, or hopefully they will have the resources to do it. And um, I think that, you know, when we think about things like global climate, we should look to that as one strategy that we really need to support. And I think many of the governments of the world are making, are, are waking up. They're saying, oh, markets don't just solve our problems for us and we need a new way. And so we need some government intervention in the market to make this world habitable. Oh my goodness. Now the international lawyer in me is going to say, wait a minute. These are global public goods and we need to obey the rules to think about this. And I'm going to, you know, I mean, I agree with you about that, but I think that if we're going to have that, if we're going to have subsidies for electric vehicles, then we need to make sure that the, that the rules are equal. So that way, uh, you know, a car maker in Europe can have the same, you know, competitive opportunity and level playing field as a United States one, because it's difficult then, and, I'm, and Stephanie's nodding, so I'm going to go to her next. It's difficult to disentangle then how these rules manage so that governments can all can all focus on these on these important issues. Because I agree with you that climate is 
is the thing that, you know, these institutions need to be focusing on. But, you know, I wonder how, how does that happen when the powerhouse that is the United States turns to it um, and then what to do, not only from the subsidies perspective, but when they when they classify it as 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 a security matter, because then it, are they being as transparent as they need to be? But Stephanie, did you want to did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I think that of course the government has to act when markets fail, but piling money into subsidies to assist U.S. automakers is maybe not the best way to do it. Um, interestingly, the U.K., because they've left the European Union, has designed a new subsidy control regime, and in it they explicitly say, you know, if this is about the environment, then it's it's fair enough, right? We're going to allow this to happen. But if, like anything, like a tariff, like anything, you can, there's always this potential to justify it, right? We don't want to import uh, beef that's been fed hormones because of a public health issue. Could be totally a genuine public health issue, absolutely. Could just be pure out protectionism. And so it's always difficult to sort of make this, um, make this argument, but I think there is certainly room uh, for industrial policy to solve environmental problems. The UK has set up the institutions to allow this to happen. It, the, the WTO doesn't, and, and I think that, you know, it's a worthy goal. Does that goal justify violating international law? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and I think, Jamie, from your point too, you know, sometimes these institutions have a bad track record. And so you need important governments to step up and to take these initiatives. But, you know, it, it's, it's a hard line to call. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to the audience um, and see if anyone has any questions. We'll take, I think, three from here and then we'll take some from online. Yeah. Did you want to just back to the gentleman right there behind you? Hey, thank you. Uh, it's wonderful to have a nice mix of people here. My question is, you brought up a couple of times and really outlined that like the mythology that we're working from is kind of old, it's inherited. You pointed out that we were sold kind of a bill of goods about how simple the exchange and international policy is going to be. My question is, is like, I've worked with a lot of young people who are pretty much like done with this. They see the whole thing and they're like, it's bankrupt and complex and they're like in economic schools. So the question is from you guys, what is the beginning of coming up with a different kind of mythology that's more accurate, more honest, not so freaking complex that you have to come to LSE to listen to it? And do you guys have some, some way of like going like a little bit deeper? Because like listening to it, I'm like, <laughs> good luck with the dark economy. I understand why these countries want autonomy from the United States, I'm a US citizen. I would too, <laughs> but what do you got that you could sort of summarize and bring out and be like a new way of us functioning from a mythological level? Because that was your term about what we were sold. Do you have anything? I think we'll take a few. So maybe this gentleman here. Yeah, hi, thank you very much for a great presentation. Um, I think it was kind of interesting. I mean, we're at the law school and I think it was interesting to start the presentations with the IMF and the WTO that effectively came out of a world of rule-based and law-based environment where the world wanted that, came out of the wars, world wars, we wanted that. And we end up talking about weaponizing sanctions that are, I'm not a lawyer, but they're effectively on dubious law, legal grounds when you go off and take countries' reserves or you weaponize energy or whatever it may be. So the world is going in a direction for whatever reason where the general mood is, forget the law, I'm going to do what suits me today. If I'm Joe Biden or if I'm Putin, it doesn't matter. We're not going to get into that. And 
we're talking about these institutions that need to rejuvenate and find a new purpose, whilst their essence is the law and the rules on which they're based. So we're trying to, how, I mean, it's a yin and a yang that don't seem to be very happy in 2022. So how does it work? And then maybe uh, I can push on here and then we'll come back for more. Do you want to just pass them the mic? Thank you. Um, I had a quick question about uh, weaponized interdependence, um, which was talked about a little bit earlier. So um, one of the examples that you gave, Abe, was around an Irish company, um, which meant that actually sanctions couldn't be put in place um, on Russian aluminium as a result of interdependence with the European automotive market, particularly in the semiconductor sector. We're seeing that some of this interdependence is very difficult to untangle. And so to what, to what degree is actually this interdependence and the intractability of it going to prevent an increase in fragmentation in global markets over the next kind of 10 to 15 years? To what degree might we see a kind of mutually assured destruction ethos when it comes to more complex supply chains? Um, so we've got a couple of questions here. One about, let's think normatively about what to do and this tension, I think, between at what point do we, I think if I understand your question correctly, do we say these institutions may not just work, which I think is connected to that first one. And then, you know, this idea about, about interdependence possibly <laughs> leading to just, um, to, to having further implications. So should we start, Jamie, do you have yeah, any sure. remarks there? Um, I suppose I'll try to answer these questions, except for the weaponized interdependence one, I'll leave that one to Abe alone. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I, you know, they're, they're great questions and they're, and they're large questions and I'm not sure I have perfect answers for them, but on this question of kind of mythology, I mean, I think one thing that we're seeing that um, Abe mentioned and that I mentioned as well is that these practices and phenomena and institutions and arrangements that once were described as non-political or as separate from the kind of sphere of politics um, now have been shown up to be political to the core, right? And I think that one thing we've seen, and I've seen it among my students as well, is an increasing recognition that what you know older generations might have assumed could have been separated from the sphere or the arenas of political conflict clearly can't be anymore. And I think that this is an important kind of sobering lesson. However, I don't think that we should kind of learn, go too far in the other extreme and say that just because um, the world involves much more conflict and, and distributional struggle than we might have once thought it um, uh, did, that we should kind of lean into that politicization fully and say everything should be about rivalry and competition and that there isn't any possibility for cooperation or for kind of public goods um, being provided widely. I think the point now is in the wake of this kind of recognition of just how deep rivalry and competition and kind of political struggle goes in these institutions and practices that were once kind of rendered completely depoliticized. Now, what do we do next? And how do we kind of get beyond rivalry and zero-sum competition? And just quickly on the question of the law and the rule of law in the world today, I'm, I'm by no means a lawyer, but I think it kind of speaks to this point I just made as well. I mean, I think that obviously there's a question of who writes the laws and who interprets the laws, and that we're moving into a world I think that's much more multipolar, um, and in which laws that were written, you know, in, in, in an era of pretty much unrivaled U.S. global um, dominance are now going to be obviously questioned by rival powers. And I think one place where you can kind of see almost a real-time 
test case for kind of what the status of norms and laws and rules going forward will be in one kind of realm is over debt restructuring and the kind of enormously complex process of debt restructuring that's going on right now um, that's taking place in a far more multipolar world and far more complex world of creditors um, than in recent memory, where you have suddenly China as a major player, um, more kind of um, uh, more complex um, private lending arrangements as well. And kind of, you know, what kind of mix of law and coercion do we get out of this? I think, you know, that might be one place to look um, um, for where we are on that. I'll take your question. I think it's very interesting and very challenging. Law is an institution and institutions reflect interests. And I think that the tension that you're pointing out is because interests have changed. And so the institutions no longer reflect the interests and institutions are sticky, they're durable, they're hard to change, but it doesn't mean that there's no hope, right? It just means that these new interests need to talk and reformulate the institutions. And I think the take on point is we can't cling to these institutions, right? Interests have changed, it's time to move on. So maybe the way to move forward is to compensate those who might lose from reform. So if the US loses their veto at the IMF, they'll gain somewhere else or and or alternatively link issues together, right? So maybe China loses out if we start regulating subsidies more strictly, maybe we link that with increased power at the IMF, something like this. Sure. So um, <clears throat> let me just start with the, the mythos kind of question and say, you know, they're all kind of these or kind of ideas. So markets are about efficiency. That's like, that's the one that got us into trouble and that we should just separate that from power. But my, you know, my take would be markets are about power. They've always been about power. How can we not think that that's what they're about? They're about amassing wealth. They're about using that to concentrate that those resources and then get what you want from that. And so we need to shape how that power is used, right? Like it was the, the earlier story was markets are efficient and generate wealth. Now it's markets are power. And so now we, the collective, we need to tell people how that should be used. And you shouldn't just stand there and just take it that like, oh, well, we're going to use it to do bad things or hit bad, you know, you, or you should decide who the bad people are. We as a collective need to be involved in that conversation. And so, you know, I think Henry and I, our big push is like, there are collective goods out in the world that these markets with this power that could be used to make that right, to try to help the world, not just to um, make it worse. On the, the question of the, you know, is it a guaranteed death spiral? <clears throat> I think the, we're in a place right now with like the semiconductor supply chain. Is it just going to unravel? I think that was your question. It was in the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, the Chips Act isn't going to friendshore or onshore uh, semiconductor supply chains for the US. And so there's going to remain interdependence. Um, does that actually mean that increasingly it won't be possible to use particularly complex supply chains um, for weaponizing interdependence where you can enforce sanctions because they could be used in reverse in return? <clears throat> yeah, so I think uh, one of the big problems in this space is that these, these supply chains are very complex, and many times people don't have the information they need in order to evaluate what's going to happen. So there were a bunch of export controls that were re recently placed on China, and then you had these reports of all of these executives that were leaving China, okay? Now, 
my understanding, it's a very complex terrain and I am not an export control lawyer. So, you know, but my understanding was is that the export controls were written in a, in a relatively specific way in order to target certain very high risk technologies. They were not like, let's get all the Americans out of China who are working on semiconductors. And so part of the problem right now is we are working in a world of a lot of uncertainty and then that leads to overcompliance that people do things because they're just, they want to cover their ASS, my daughter's right there. You know, so you know, they want so my concern is as we use these tools that we don't really have all the parameters around to prevent them from smiling spiraling out of control. I think the US has very critical positions in the supply chain that they can use as this kind of lever. Um, it's harder for other countries to do it back to the United States, unless TSMC was going to say they're not going to supply the United States, and then that would be really bad. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think the challenge now, too, is for us to think about how to bring the United States back to wanting to engage in in multilateral cooperation. I think that's that's the challenge within all that uncertainty that you highlighted really well is, you know, are these institutions, can they still incur that? But I want to turn to... Uh, some online questions. This is Lauren here, everybody, one of our PhD students. So we have a couple questions on China. So I thought we'd group them together. Okay. Uh, so Anthony, who's a LSE external alum, uh, questions uh, ke mentions Kevin Rudd, a uh, former prime minister of Australia, advocates that the US and China find ways to cooperate on issues of global importance, including climate and enhancing multilateralism as well as find ways to limit the risks of their security competition. So he asks whether there's any further thoughts on a rule book to deal with these issues uh, and how should smaller countries participate in global governance without having to completely pick sides. Uh, he follows up further um, that the Trump administration had blocked judicial appointments at the WTO um, so that disputes couldn't be heard. Um, and wonders if you'd seen any signs of Biden and President Xi finding a way to get the WTO disputes working again. Um, another question uh, about China, uh, Patrick Flynn, a visitor to LSE, asks how sinister the friendship of no limits between Russia and China is, um, especially as we see OPEC plus siding with Russia and China as they ignore the Biden administration's request to produce more oil. And our final China-focused question is from Dr. Christy Thomas, the deputy head of the Aston Law School in Birmingham. Says that several speakers have mentioned the challenge of accommodating China within existing systems. What would the speaker see as the key to the future of global economic governance with China at its center? Awesome, big questions about China, no easy answers. Um, I'm going to take the appellate body one just very quickly and say that uh, at this point, governments are trying to work around kind of coming up with a solution for that. And about 50, I think it's now 52 members out of the 164 WTO members have tried to come up with a solution, but they still have a working dispute settlement mechanism. Um, but until the United States, uh, you know, until the United States concerns with the appellate body as it was working, and it's too complicated to go into now, are addressed, we still have a panel system that, that continues to function, um, but it would require the Biden administration to, to want to implement 
and agree to, to talking about some of those changes to see it reinstated, but it's a problem for enforcement of the international trade rules. Can I add two fingers yeah. on that? And this is a super important issue at the WTO, right? Without a court of final appeal, it could all unravel. But I just wanted to add, it's not about China, right? We, we can blame China for a lot of bad things going on in the global economy, but this is not about China, right? This is a long-standing concern that the U.S. has had with the WTO's appellate body. And so that one, we, we cannot place at China's door. Yeah, and, and I think China actually has said in, in meetings that it's, it, it is keen to bring that back. But it, if I'm wrong on that, then um, someone will correct me. But um, so let's, let's hear from our panelists. Abe, I'm going to start with you this time think about, you know, some of these issues in the relationship with the United States and China and what you what you see as possible ways out of that. Um, great. So <clears throat> I think the first thing I'd just like to say is that the United States is not, I think, currently uh, abandoning multilateral institutions. And I think if you think about, you know, the, what the United States has been doing in the UN, how it's been trying to work with other countries multilaterally on many, many different issues. I think that the, it's it's an oversimplification to say the US is just using unilateralism. But I would also say multilateral institutions almost always rely on some level of unilateralism. They they go hand in glove. If you think about what the United States did in the post-war period, you know, many of these institutions, they relied on some kind of power in the background that guaranteed their, their perseverance. And so now we need to think about, I think as Stephanie was saying, where do the interests align where we could then create institutions where then there would be unilateral power in the background that would help those institutions accomplish something. And I really think with China and the United States that climate is the place where both of these countries, they have an existential reason, domestic politically, as well as internationally to cooperate on these areas. And that's where my biggest concern is as the United States becomes more aggressive in these security areas or is worried about, let's say, technology competition, that that will erode the potential for cooperation in a multilateral sense on something like climate. And so that's why I think you need to have these kinds of rules of the road to say, okay, you know, we're, we're playing Hamilton. You know, that's, we believe there are certain sectors that are national security <clears throat> interests that we have to protect. But there's so much of the global economy that isn't and we can collaborate there. And if you think about China for decades, they had areas where they were intervening in their global economy and doing things. You know, it's like, we can, we can all be big people here and say, let's collaborate on these places where we need to. And then we'll also protect ourselves in places where we want to as well. Yeah. In fact, the WTO was created because of unilateral action as an example of it. Um, and I'm gonna keep going with Hamilton because I told my students last week, we want to have everyone in the room where it happened. Um, and so that's really an important part of international cooperation. Uh, and now I'm gonna go to Stephanie. So one of, one of the points was about small states. And I think it is important to get small states at the table. And interestingly, one of the very, very few agreements that have been reached at the WTO in recent years was an agreement to regulate subsidies for fishing on the high sea. And it was actually led by small states. It was the small states who were really pushing for this, New Zealand, Iceland, they were at the forefront of this. So small states have an important voice and we shouldn't ever exclude them, right? Um, the other thing I would say is that when China was trying to get into the WTO, it was big US firms that were lobbying for this. I had a friend who worked for, I won't say the name, but a very big 
tech firm in the United States, and they were literally mailing out postcards to, to people, random people, to congressmen saying, get China into the WTO. And so there was this economic pressure from US firms who thought, great, we can go in there and, and produce and, and get this stuff back into the US tariff-free. But politically, there was this myth that we'll get China on board, we'll get them into the global economy, and they'll become like us. And that hasn't worked. And so, of course, we should try to find areas where there's agreement and where we can work together, but it, it doesn't look good right now. I think there's a lot of divergent interests. And I think that it's a challenging situation where they're inside the institution and you know they will say, we're, we're playing by the letter of the law, we're complying with the letter of the law. And many other states will say, well, you're not complying with the spirit of the law. Right? And there's this great quote from, uh, I forget who it is, one of the big Chinese leaders, he's like, don't talk to me about the spirit, right? Like we're, we're complying <laughs> with the letter, but that's a challenge. And so I, I think we should always strive for cooperation, but it's hard to see where, where it's gonna happen. Yeah, I would say I, I, I also um, hope we will strive for cooperation. And I do think, I, I think I uh, sympathize with Abe's view that there are real um, areas in which the US and China can co uh, cooperate productively. And I think that, you know, again, to return to this context that I mentioned a few moments ago, it's, you know, right now, this question of debt restructuring that's going on and the, the extreme debt distress faced by moment, so many states around the world. And the question of, you know, how is China, which has become this huge bilateral lender over the last few decades, how is China going to respond to essentially the first kind of global debt crisis in which it's a major player? And I think that there has been a lot of criticism um, of, you know, the opaque nature of, of China's loan arrangements with states, kind of the secretive way in which it conducts um, business. But it also seems so far that China is actually proving to be kind of perhaps more of a cooperative player in these kind of enormously complex debt restructuring negotiations going on. And I think that there's been a lot of exaggerated fears and even paranoia, uh, dare I say, about um, China's kind of, um, you know, strategy of debt trap diplomacy, for example, and so much of the way that China operates in the world now is being described through this um, sphere of kind of new Cold War um, rhetoric and competition. So for example, a state like, like Sri Lanka that just experienced you know, extraordinary financial turmoil, you know, if you read uh, about it as it was happening, um, so much of uh, kind of ultimate responsibility for it was placed at China's doorstep when it turned out that actually um, Sri Lanka owed more debt to private bondholders um, in Europe um, and in the US than to China. Um, the world is enormously uh, more competitive and, and multipolar, I think, right now. Uh, uh, but, I, but I do think that there's room for cooperation. I think on this question of kind of unilateralism versus multilateralism and the way power is wielded in these institutions, I think we, one thing that we, we are seeing and that seems kind of you know, uh, unlikely to change is that China's unlikely to want to cooperate kind of full, um, uh, fully with an institution like the IMF in which the United States structurally wields the power of veto and in which uh, the institution was designed and remains um, able to be dominated effectively by the US at the end of the day. And this is one of the contexts and reasons why China has set out to create its own multilateral institutions like the Asia Development Bank, right? This was in fact a direct response to the failure of quota reform at the IMF um, just over a decade ago. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there's a possibility for institutions that are not, in fact, backed um, by unilateral power for the China, uh, for China and the U.S. to cooperate. But uh, that will take some serious institutional reform. Yeah. 
Um, I think we have time for, for one more, one final question, if everyone can can hope for it. I think this maybe this lady right here. Is, uh, uh, great, thank you. So it's kind of a bit on your last remark there. What I wanted to ask was about kind of private bond holding market forces in this debate. So we talked a lot about the Western view, the view of Western institutions, and then the kind of Chinese view as opposed to that. How do market forces influence this debate? And is there any consistent view from the private sector or private financial institutions that are pulling one way or the other towards cooperation or multilateralism? Private actors. That's something I think we all mm -hmm. can definitely speak to. Jamie, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it depends on which countries you're looking at. Obviously, some countries, you know, um, you know, have have much more debt that they've accrued from Chinese lenders. Other countries have much more debt that they've accrued from private bondholders or from other sovereign lenders. Um, I think it would be hard to say kind of that there'd be a universal view of, of private bondholders and how to kind of respond to um, this crisis or these crises that we're seeing today. I think that there is, um, you know, there's, there's, there's generally a view, I think, that when these kind of complex debt restructurings go on, that there's a risk that private bondholders will kind of ride on the coattails as, you know, official creditors take losses. Um, and I think there's been a lot of consternation among some of these private actors um, at how opaque China has been. Um, and that there's a kind of a desire for knowledge. Uh, and, um, you know, but I, again, I think it's, it's, it's very complex. I think it's a very imperfect answer to your question, but it's, um, it's right to focus on it. Because again, I think that one of the ways, one of the narratives that's been really deployed um, uh, to potentially dangerous effect is that this kind of brewing global debt crisis is ultimately um, uh, a product of the irresponsibility of China as a lender, when we know that actually that's very far from the truth. I was going to make a joke about the power of bond markets, but uh, we haven't talked about UK politics, so I will not make such a joke. Um, but I will say something that I think is a challenge for, for private actors, for market actors, with, when it comes to China, is just the lack of information. They just said, we're not going to put out our third quarter GDP numbers. I mean, we don't know. And even in the, in subsidies, we all talk about Chinese subsidies. It's you know a huge focus of consternation. So many policymakers are thinking about how do we deal with Chinese subsidies? We don't know how much they're spending on subsidies. Fitch Ratings had to go out and try to do text data analysis to get any sense of where these subsidies are, who's getting them. I mean, there's just a real lack of information. And so that hampers the market's ability to sanction or, or, or push us towards cooperation. Yeah, I just, I think it's really, for, for my work, you know, these, the new forms of power rely on the networks of the private actors. And so following what they're doing will tell you a lot about how, how things are really changing on the ground. And one of the things I think is so interesting is like in the world of finance, it's like nobody wants to talk about it. That's like where decoupling has really not happened in the same way that we're seeing in like the tech sector and where both sides, the Chinese side and the US side are like struggling to keep that knitted together. And, you know, the conversation is very apparent right now in Germany, where all the lessons of Russia are being questioned, do they need to apply to China next? And it's like one industrial sector after the next in Germany is saying, oh, no, we don't need to apply those lessons here. And so I just think that we, you know, before we jump to the world's falling apart, everything's over, you know, that we need to remember that these market actors, they have all these relationships, they're trying to maintain them, they'll use political as well as economic methods to do it. 
And that, you know, for all of our benefit, it would be good if that happens in places where it's not generating a security risk. Thank you so much to all of our speakers and to everyone online and in the audience. Uh, for those that are here, there's some drinks outside. If you didn't get to ask your question, um, you know, please, please stay uh, and mingle for that. But if not, uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.